I mean, hills are speed work in disguise, as the great Frank Shorter used to say. I'm a big fan of timed hill reps. I like to do every workout by progression. So if you're getting a little higher up the hill in that interval, then that's a sign that you're actually progressing. Very easy to look at, very easy to monitor. That was Chris McClung. And this is episode 112 of the Inspired Souls podcast. Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a roadrunner. And I'm Kim, and I'm a trail runner. Welcome to our podcast, where we bring the communities of trail and road running together and explore the parallels between running and life. Based out of Austin, Texas, Chris McClung is a 245 marathoner, running coach, and host of the Running Rogue podcast. He's exceptionally knowledgeable about many aspects of run training, but in this episode, we decided to pick his brain about training for hilly races. This conversation is a deep dive on all things hills, including why one might consider training for a hilly race, Chris's definition of a hilly race, the many benefits of hill training, sample hill workouts and how to progress them, when to include hill training in your cycle and how to make it course specific, if there's such a thing as too much hill training, what we can do in the weight room to prepare for hilly races, and how to be creative if you live in a flat location or face unsafe weather conditions. If you've got a hilly race on your calendar in 2023 or beyond, then this is the episode for you. So without further delay, let's get into it with Chris McClung. All right, Chris, welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you with us tonight. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I hope you don't mind, but I'm going to fangirl here for just a moment. Your podcast, Running Rogue, is probably one of the most impactful podcasts I listen to as a runner and as a coach. And I mean that wholeheartedly. Every single time I think you put out an episode, I feel like it was created just for me from the title of the episode to the content that you share inside. And I told you this before we started recording, but I think I have listened to almost every single episode you've released since 2016. And on that note, I feel like I know you, which I hope isn't too creepy. <laughs> okay, it's okay. So let me start by thanking you for your incredible contribution to the running community and for making time to share even more with us tonight. Of course. Well, thank you for listening. That means a lot coming from a fellow coach to have someone that follows along with that pedigree. So it's an honor to be on with you guys. And it's for me, podcasting, it's a labor of love. It's extension of my love for the sport of running. I do it because I truly believe that through this bizarre means, I can help change the world one person at a time, one step at a time, one runner at a time. And mm, so that's I why I that. put, out, put out the content that I put out. And it's something I love to do. And it's so fun to hear from people when I do have impact because when you know, you guys know how it is when you're recording by yourself in a room, you don't often know what that will eventually lead to. But but hearing from folks like you, as well as I get listener emails all the time that that there's yeah. impact happening out there and that that's what it's all about for me. Yes. Okay. Well, it, for anyone who may not have uh, listened to an episode, you typically start with, this is Chris McClung coming at you from Austin, Texas. So my first question for you is, what's it like in Austin, Texas today? Austin is unseasonably warm today. We, oh. but that's been pretty normal for us. And we get we enter this time of year where we kind of call it false fall, because it's fall by way of the calendar, but our temperatures haven't really shifted yet. We're we're pretty warm climate as as most people I think would expect. But today was particularly tough. I think we hit 
somewhere in the mid 80s today oh Fahrenheit, wow. which was nice and warm. It was 70 plus this morning when I got out for my run and very, very humid. So I can tell you that those of us who run in Austin are pretty tired of it and ready for that shift, that weather to shift fully over to true fall and true winter because it's been a long, hotter than ever summer here. But wow. it's all good. We've fortunately adapted to it and are are slogging our way through. Mm. <laughs> well, it is all relative because we're firmly, I would say, almost in winter. Like we got snow last night and it was like cold and I had a whole bunch of layers on on my run today. So, and I know yeah, Kim, you've been it dumped was on not in Calgary. Winter here. It was minus yeah. 17 Celsius. So I don't know what wow. that is. Like it's, it's almost minus something Fahrenheit. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm not proud of that. <laughs> yeah. This just confirms that we're always complaining about something, I think, yeah, as runners yeah. when it comes to the weather. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. Yes, you guys complain about the cold. I'll complain yes. about the heat. We'll <laughs> yeah, the you got it. it. <laughs> okay, well, before we get into our main topic tonight, which we want to pick your brain about hills, all things hills, we always love hearing how people kind of got into the sport, like your your first kind of steps as a runner and maybe what led you into becoming a coach in your case. So do you remember sort of that origin story? Yes, for me, I was a soccer player growing up from five up through the early parts of of college. And of course I ran a lot on the soccer field, but never really thought of it as running at the time. And if we did do running specifically, it was typically a punishment. So my relationship with the sport was a negative one when you're talking about running for running's sake, because it was punishment for us and in my sport, but was doing a lot of running all over the field, which built a nice foundation for when I did ultimately find it in a different way, which happened later in college and I had a friend of mine who had run cross country and done track and field in high school. He wasn't doing it collegiately, but he was continuing to run on his own and had started doing road races. And he was my sweet mate. And he said, hey, I'm training for this 10K in Houston is where I went to school. Why don't you train with me? And at that time, I wasn't playing soccer anymore. I was doing a bunch of other things intramurally. And I was also ironically playing club volleyball. But I needed a way to stay fit. And so I said, sure, I'll go out for a couple of runs with you and we'll see how it goes. Well, one thing led to another and I got hooked by it. And that first 10K sealed sealed the deal for me. And I've been a runner ever since. For me, as much as anything, it was about finding a, a new way to compete with myself to strive in the area of sport where I'd had that with soccer my entire life. And having lost that, I needed another outlet for it. And running became that. For me, in the year 2000, my last year of college, and I've been pretty much running consistently ever since. My second race after that 10K, I'd signed up for the Chicago Marathon, so I went straight from 10K to marathon. After I graduated, I was going to do that in the fall of 2000, that same year. But ultimately, I got a stress fracture in training for that marathon, which took me out for about three months because I started again and got re-injured, and it ended up being whole thing that I was determined to not let happen again. And so that also became the beginning of my coaching journey, that injury, because then I was going to, I then began to read everything I could about how to actually train the right way. Cause I'd clearly done it the wrong way. So I got very deep on coaching books, coaching curriculum, read all of the ones that you, you hear about Jack Daniels book and Pete Fitzinger's book and 
all the books and I did as much reading as I could. Also started following the sport at the elite level to try to figure out what they were doing to stay healthy and perform. And from there, that really developed my foundation in wanting to move towards coaching, which I wouldn't really do full time for many years after that. But I started doing in, in small ways with friends and things like that several years later. But that became the beginning, that injury. And so since then, I've been voraciously consuming everything I can to learn how to do it the right way. So what did you determine to be the cause of your stress fracture while you were training for Chicago? Pretty simple. Just going too hard all the time. You know, I'd grown Mm -hmm. up again with a soccer background. And so it was a lot of, you, you know, you pushed, you always push, you're always trying to find that edge on the field. And you didn't really think about the times you were cruising around the field. You thought about the times where you were sprinting and going hard. And that's what we would do in practice. And so mm-hmm. I was just running too fast all the time and ultimately pushed myself to injury that way. And pretty quickly learned that not only is that a recipe for injury, but it's also a recipe for not reaching your potential. If you can't learn to slow down and balance that stress and rest, you know, developing that yin and yang. So learned that. Yeah, you just dropped a podcast about that recently, didn't you? I, did. I was just listening yes, to it. I did, yes. <laughs> yeah. It was an episode on, is your training polarized enough? And my yes. my training at that time was not polarized enough. But I learned a little bit then, and obviously my education has continued, so now I embrace that fully. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And do you find as a coach, like that's just one subject that you could just, you could for the rest of your life showed it from the rooftop and it would like never, ever (laughs) land. Like, I feel like I'm just preaching that one over and over. And I find, try to find, like, try to tweak my message a little bit to hopefully help it to land. Like, what has your experience been? Do people really embrace it or does it take some time? It always takes time. It's the number one mistake people make is going too fast. And I find that people struggle to intuitively embrace it even when you explain it, which is odd to me. And recently I've started talking about it a little bit differently in that when you think about strength training, it's no different than what we talk about with running in terms of balancing that stress and rest and going easy when you need to go easy. But when you strength train, you go in and you're trying to improve your max bench press, you lift lower weight for higher reps most of the time, and then occasionally you stress your max. It's the same in running. We're doing lower weight, i.e. lower pace most of the time with higher reps. And then occasionally we see how, see what we can really accomplish in a race or a harder workout. So it's the very same exercise principles and strength training, but we accept those out of hand. But when I try to explain it to somebody in the context of running, they just can't get it. Well, how, how am I going to run faster if I'm only going slow most of the time? And so it, it is counterintuitive. I get that. But it's so, so important. There's no way you will stay healthy and reach your potential unless you embrace that concept. 100%. Okay. Well, you have so much knowledge. I know that you could share with us, but we've chosen to focus this podcast tonight on the subject of hills, hilly races, hill training. A lot of runners right now are planning their season for next year and entering lotteries or trying to qualify for certain races. So, you know, it might be logical to somebody that lives in a hilly area that they might have to train for hills if the race is in that area. But what about those that don't live in hilly areas or looking for destination races? Why would somebody want to specifically choose a hilly race? 
It's a good question. I wish people would more often embrace hilly races because I do think there's a certain pride that comes from doing your best on a challenging course. Here in Austin, it's easy to get after that because our marathon is a very hilly, hilly marathon. We live in a city that's very hilly. But even still, people shy away from our local race because of the hills, which has always baffled me. I would, I would much prefer people say, hey, I did this on a challenging course, and then that brings that much more pride. So I think there's a couple of reasons, or there's potentially more than that, but you know, at least a couple. One is that pride of doing something on a challenging course. Mm-hmm. And if you can run a certain time on a challenging course, then it carries a little bit more panache perhaps than a flat course. So that's certainly one reason. I think another reason is that sometimes hilly courses are more scenic, more interesting. Mm, good point. Uh, Big Sewer in California here in the U.S., beautiful race, very challenging hilly course. But you only get to see those Pacific views if you're willing to tackle it. So that, that, that would be a reason to do it. Some people, of course, choose downhill courses because they're looking to run fast. And so that's sort mm-hmm. of the opposite effect of... And, and I get that too. Some people, you know, are using those downhill courses to achieve certain standards, whether that be to qualify for Boston or perhaps to get a standard to get into Chicago or another race like that. So that would be another reason. And, you know, again, could also be about just picking something, uh, picking a city that you love and it happens to have a challenging course associated with it. For those that want to stay local with Austin, you're going to face that, but there could be other reasons that you have connection to a city that might lead you to doing a challenging course because you're, you're specially connected to a certain place. Those are all great reasons, particularly the scenic one. I mean, that's why trail runners often choose their courses is for the summits. Um, it, this makes me, as you were talking, it made me remember my first marathon and Carolyn knows only road marathon to date. <laughs> I chose very specifically, it was from Eucula to Tofino on Vancouver Island, the west side of Vancouver Island. And it was a flat course. Like there were a few hills out of Eucula, but I would say the last 20 miles were very, very flat. And by the end, I was just begging for a hill. I wanted a hill so badly. My knees were so sore. So I will actually add like maybe a fifth or sixth reason there that it adds variety. Your legs are hitting the ground in different ways, right? And you don't tend to get that overuse strain as much if there's That's a good point. I do find Houston here in Texas is pancake flat race. And I do find the recovery from that race is more difficult than a challenging course because you're using the same muscles the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah or, a, or a Chicago or even like I'm in Winnipeg, Manitoba, oh, and it's yeah. like flatter than flat. Over and I think there's, your hills. what is it? Nine, right. nine feet of elevation gain in the entire marathon. <laughs> oh, it's yeah. That exists. It does exist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's move into maybe then how to specifically train for a hilly race. So you, you've got a uh, a Boston or a New York City or a CIM or an Austin road marathon, or you've got an ultra marathon that's got a ton of vert on your program. How would you approach the run training for a hilly race differently than you would for the Chicago or the Manitoba marathon where sure. it's it's a lot flatter? Well, one my first point here would be that there are a lot of similarities in how you would approach those races. So I also want to always remind people that you can't neglect the fundamentals because if you're good on the fundamentals, then that's going to take you a long way regardless of 
the terrain. And especially for those that are looking at the marathon distance, I'm a big believer in getting in as many 20 plus mile long runs as you can in order to prep to cover the distance. And so I will regularly write schedules even for new marathoners to do three or four 20 plus mile runs, potentially five to six for more experienced runners. Not that you necessarily have to do that many, but if you can get at least a couple up to three or four 20 plus mile runs, then that's going to give you that, that neuromuscular resilience that you need to cover the distance regardless of the terrain. So I'm a big believer in the fundamental elements as well. Plenty of 20 plus mile runs, solid medium long runs here in the week, which for marathoners, I like them to get up to eight to 12 miles overall volume in a sufficient level. So somebody asked me recently, what's the minimum volume per week? I want to see a marathoner put out. And I told them, I think 43 miles, (laughs) which five days a week, one 20 mile long run, a 10 mile medium long run, a seven or eight mile quality workout and then a couple of three mile recovery runs will get you right around that range. So 40 plus miles a week, plenty of 20 milers and medium long runs. All of those things are going to put you a long way to go accomplish a marathon regardless of the terrain. And then once you get beyond that, once you've established those fundamentals, then it's a question of, okay, how do I customize my training in order to mimic the dynamics I might see on the course that I'm facing? And so we like to, we have a phrase around my community here in Rogue and Austin where we say, where we ask the question, what does the race require? What does the race require? And that would mean looking at the course profile, the elevation profile and and asking, you know, what does it require? Is it a smooth downhill race? Is it a rolling course? Is it a net downhill like CIM that has actually plenty of rollers early in the race? What is that profile so that you can then start to layer in some unique simulation type work that will mimic that terrain. And so that's when you want to build in some specific sessions that are going to mimic the terrain that you might face. And so I like people to think about if you're doing a, say, 20-week marathon build that you would build in some sort of simulator type workout or long run that comes every three weeks or so. Early on, it might be simply in the workouts where you're adding some hills Later on, you're going to want to do one to two long runs where you're trying to mimic the terrain as closely as possible that you're going to face on race day. So those are some elements, but then that allows you to practice your pace on hills, on downhills, whatever it may be that you may that you may face. And you want to try to then tailor those specific workouts as closely as possible to what you'll face on race day. And I'm sure we'll talk about examples of what that might look like. So do you only have runners do hills every three weeks or do you have them integrate hill work into their weekly training as well? I would want them if possible to build it into their everyday runs as well. And so certainly you have the simulation stuff, but I, in Austin, I would love it if everybody did hilly terrain on almost every single run, if you're keeping the effort easy enough, but that's a big if right most people want to press a little bit but but yeah i mean i i actually like recovery runs on hills if you're willing to go easy enough and maybe even occasionally walk up a hill because the up and downs are so dynamic you're getting that full flushing that you need to work out all of that waste you may have built up in muscles from long runs or other quality workouts and so to the extent that you can add hills at easy efforts to everyday running 
that's also a, a nice bonus, but that can be challenging, obviously, if you live in live in a place like Winnipeg or Houston, Texas. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to be on my treadmill all the time. No. <laughs> <laughs> I really like how you emphasized don't sacrifice the the goal of the workout for the train, right? Like if your goal is to run an easy day, make sure it stays easy, um, even if you're on different train. Um, similar to, I always bring back to cycling, right? You're not going to stay at a, a hard gear all the way up a hill when you're biking every time, right? So you have to change right. your gears. Um, I was going to ask you, what do you consider a hilly race or a hilly run? But I really, I think you kind of answered that in that, Every course is different. Every run is different. You have to train specifically for that event, you know, whether it's net down or, you know, what the grades are like. But would you like to, would you like to answer that? What do you consider I mean, a hilly, it's, it's hilly race? We're having this debate <laughs> between a road runner and an ultra athlete. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's I've, what done, I to I've done the Squamish 50 mile in, in Squamish and that has 10,000 feet of gain and 10,000 feet of descent. So when you're talking about it in the context of an ultra, it's very different. How about roads? Let's say for like a marathon. Yeah, we're going to talk about this in the context of roads. So if we're talking about it in the context of roads, any marathon that has more than about 800 feet of gain is a, a marathon that I think you, sh you should uniquely prepare for and that you have to adjust your paces accordingly. Our, our marathon here in Austin has about 1,200 feet. And I consider that a very challenging marathon course so mm -hmm. but very different than typically in ultra worlds you're talking about thousand multiples of thousands <laughs> and so we're talking more about 800 to 1200 feet yeah. that's when things really i think start to get challenging and and just um not to leave the the people out that mostly run on the flats are there still benefits to training hills even if someone is not training for a hilly race Absolutely. I mean, hills are speed work in disguise, as the great Frank Shorter used to say. There's a place for that in all cycles. And if you're periodizing your training, particularly during that strength phase, which is going to come depending on the length of your cycle, probably anywhere from nine to 14, 15 weeks out from your race day, that's where in particular, I think you want to build that into every single cycle if you can is a steady diet of hills. It might have places it might have a place elsewhere in your training too depending on what you're doing. But I like to in that strength phase of a of a cycle where you're building aerobic endurance as well as power work in hills perhaps as frequently as every other week. So you've answered the question now of how many hills are enough or how much hill training is enough, but is it possible to do too much hill work? I think it is. I think it is. I, I don't think, I think you have to be careful about that. The challenge with hill work, especially downhill work, it's less of a challenge with uphill work, but especially downhill work is it can be very, very hard on your body. That eccentric loading creates soreness unlike any other soreness. And that means it may be harder to recover, harder to get back onto other work if you're doing downhill specific training. And also because you're loading the forces on your, your body, your skeletal system in particular, I think people might see higher instances of injury if doing too much downhill work. I can tell you training for Boston one year, I was very big on downhill work and I overdid it. I ended up, I ended up with a stress fracture in my heel. Partially, mm. there were other reasons, but partially because I think I overdid the downhill work because I was really trying to prepare for that part of the Boston course. And I did a little too much, ended up with a stress fracture that manifested in the race itself. 
And so, yes, I think you can do too much. And how might someone know if they're on that precipice of of too much? Like, what are kind of the signs? If you even reflect back to that training cycle for Boston, was it 2016, did you say? 2016, yep. Yeah. So looking back, were there red flags that you can now see in the rearview mirror? Um, I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to say. I think <laughs> it's easy to look back as I was digesting it. Hindsight's twenty twenty. You can say, look, we did, you know, X, Y, and Z. But for me, I don't know that it was as obvious in the moment, but it's something certainly I learned in hindsight that you can overdo it and you don't have to do that much. And even the science, the more recent science tells us that you, know, you can have hill downhill, especially adaptation with as few as three sessions within six weeks of a race. And that doesn't even necessarily mean that you have to run fast on those downhill sessions. I think one thing I learned after that cycle was that I could get downhill training by just running easy downhill. And so when I was actually training for Squamish in 2019, the race was that summer, but I was building up through the summer and late spring. I did a lot of downhill work at easy efforts and that... Mm prepared my quads in a way that basically prepared me the way I needed to be for that race. I did not lose my quads, so to speak, in in that, right. that 50 mile race with 10,000 feet of drop. I would also venture to say that depending on the grade, like when it's really steep, <clears throat> so I've got to throw a trail runner comment in here somewhere. When it's really steep, going slower can actually be more work, right? When you're decelerating yourself more and and slowing down more, it can be harder than than letting yourself fly. So I've sometimes felt myself even more sore <laughs> on the days <laughs> that I've really slowed down on steep terrain, right? Sure. Mm. Yeah. I avoid that steep terrain because I'm terrified of it. But uh, <laughs> But yes, point taken. Yeah. But I guess you don't want to feel like you're breaking too much, right? Exactly. Like when you're, yeah. Yeah. I think a sign, a sign is when it starts to compromise your other work, then it becomes yeah, something that might be too much, point. which is true of almost any stimulus, right? Is when it starts to compromise other work, then you know, you need to make an adjustment. So when it's compromising, you know, when that soreness lingers, extra, you know, a few extra days and that might compromise another long run or another workout, then that's right. a cue or a clue that you've, you've overdone it a little bit. Excellent yeah. point. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I like this. So we don't have to hammer the downhills. We can just take them easy. Is there anything else, maybe anything that we could do in the weight room to prepare mm -hmm. us for the downhills? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is huge. And really any strength training is going to help you in this area, right? And that should be a part of every runner's routine, especially if you're looking to run for performance, is at least a couple of sessions a week of strength. It doesn't have to be complicated, doesn't have to be super long, but I think that's a, something that should be a part of everybody's program. And then, but then when we're, especially when you're working on the downhill side of the equation, doing the eccentric strength work or really emphasizing the eccentric movements is going to be something that would be helpful in that specific cycle that you might be training for a lot of downhill work. And, and when we say eccentric, that's when basically you're lowering your body or lowering your weight in order to get that strength motion. So oftentimes with strength, we think about the push off or the, the standing back up if we're doing a squat or a lunge or something like that as the strength work. But really, it's the lowering part that we want to emphasize when we're em emphasizing eccentric movement. So things like weighted split squats, where you're really focused on the amount of time it takes to lower your body versus the other way around, or 
lunges or squats where you're emphasizing that downward motion would be a way to work on eccentric strength. And I think if you're in a cycle that has a bunch of, or where your race has a bunch of downhill work, then you should be doing at least one day a week of your strength training where you're emphasizing those eccentric movements. And when you say emphasizing the eccentric phase of the movement, do you just mean taking longer to lower yourself down than you would to come back up? So maybe down for four and up for one type of thing, or is there a, a specific metric that you put on it that helps make this crystal clear for people? Yeah, definitely time and taking your time, lowering yourself is, is the key. Typically what I like to see is that you take at least five seconds to lower yourself in order to get the true eccentric benefit to a lunge, a squat, a split squat, whatever it may be. So really emphasizing that lowering process is, is the key. It's hard to be disciplined and patient about it, but that's what we're talking about. Otherwise you're, you're not really taking advantage of that eccentric strength building. As a physiotherapist, I know if there's one way people often get injured, it's it's doing eccentric work and running too, right? So what are some things you would recommend that a person make sure they pay attention to when they're doing eccentric work to keep themselves injury free? Well, one would be just to make sure you're being very patient with the weight that you're adding. Starting with body weight movements is going to be an important step, especially if you're not used to this type of work. And then gradually, very gradually adding the weight. One myth that we think about is that a hallmark of an effective strength program is that we're really sore the next day, mm-hmm. when in reality, that's not the way we should be operating as runners. I mean, that may be something that works in the context of somebody who's trying to be a power lifter, but for runners who are trying to emphasize the running portion of this and really supplement what they're doing for running, then most of the time you shouldn't be walking away very sore from your strength work. And if you are, then that's a sign that you're probably overdoing it either with duration or using too much weight. And I think eccentric loading is one area where oftentimes people do too much weight initially. So I would start with body weight, gradually add in very small increments. You may have to check your ego at the door when doing that, but it's going to dramatically improve your ability to not only do the work and stay healthy, as you said, but also then go do the rest of the stuff you're trying to do in training. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on doing some of your strength work like in front of a mirror so you have that biofeedback of like checking your form as you go or or having a professional like a personal trainer or somebody like um, sort of make sure that you're at least doing the, the movements themselves correctly before ever adding that external load? Yeah, I think mirrors can be deceptive. So I, you know, I think the best person, the way, the best way is to get a trainer or a physio who can show you these things and make sure you're doing it the right way, because it's hard. It's hard to check yourself, and I know you know not everybody can necessarily afford that on on an ongoing basis. But if you were to pay someone for a few sessions to at least learn movement proficiency. That would make a huge difference because Mm -hmm. oftentimes when we get hurt in the weight room, it's because we're moving the wrong way and not because we're doing too much weight or we're doing something else wrong. So I think that's important, but it's hard from my perspective to see that in a mirror. You really have to have somebody there kind of helping you. And it can also be perhaps a friend who understands it and can kind of show you the ways, or perhaps you can work together once you both know what you're doing and check each other and make sure you're doing it doing it effectively so that you don't end up in those situations where you're compromising either the effectiveness of the work or compromising your ability to stay healthy. 
Yeah, mirrors will only give you one plane of view, right? You can't see yourself from the side without changing your form yep. <laughs> or from the back. Yeah, very yeah, good and, point. And some things you shouldn't be looking up anyway, right? Yeah. There's yeah. some movements where you should actually exactly. be focused elsewhere and looking up and compromise it. So, so yes, I completely think a trainer or PT is a better way. Yeah. Okay. So you've mentioned a couple of extra, you've mentioned, um, squats and split squats and lunges. Are there any other kind of like core, like if you were to pick the top five exercises that all runners should do, like, is there, do you have sort of a short list, uh, to, to cover off what we may need to do that hilly race or that hilly workout? Yeah, I mean, I would, I would add deadlifts to the list of the ones I've already mentioned, both two leg and single leg deadlifts especially on the single leg, you want to start body, you know, with body weight to make sure that those movements are proficient before you start adding weight to single leg deadlifts. Beyond that, a strong core is important as well. So basic planks, both front, back and side, or all three front, back and side can be effective. And, you know, when you start getting more proficient with that, you can add different modifications on planks that will help boost the effectiveness of those motions and then simple push pull exercises so push ups pull ups anything that will then activate the shoulders and and uh, chest a little bit and even though you're not using those things actively it's all an important part of arm carriage and making sure that you're efficiently moving your upper body as well mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. beyond that i don't you don't necessarily need much more you know that we've already listed so I like to keep it simple and, and of course, you know, people can complicate things, I think too easily often and, or, you know, sometimes they get bored continuing to do the basics, but you don't necessarily have to change beyond what we've just listed. If you're doing them consistently, then they're going to have outsized impact. If you do it over time, I like to say, you know, small things done consistently is way better than big things done inconsistently. So find your small list of exercises and do it. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I think runners absolutely overcomplicate the strength thing to the point that they just never get started. A lot of them. Right. So the way I try to keep it simple for people is I have exactly that, what you just said. There's kind of five major categories. If you want to think about them like that, like a squat, a hinge, push, pull, and rotary stability, like your core stuff. So I just have like a list, like a whiteboard, and I'm just constantly adding exercises to each column. And then when I go to do my strength workout, I just pick one from each column and that's my workout for the day. And as long as I'm kind of rotating through all of those, and then if I see a cool exercise, I add it to the list. And then it's sort of like a choose your own adventure. And that's how I do it. And people are like, you know, can you build me a a thing? I'm like, you don't have to get complicated or fancy. Like these are just basic movements, but if we're progressing them either through the weight that you're adding or you're progressing to a single leg or something like that to be more runner specific, I think we're moving in the right direction always. Agree. Okay. This next question is a little bit self-serving because I live in Winnipeg, Manitoba, the uh, flattest place on earth. So I I have a lot of clients that struggle to get their training in for a hilly race when they live in a flat location. And then on top of the flat location, we have this ridiculously long winter that goes on for six months. So a lot of the time it truly is 
unsafe. It is slippery. It's cold. The footing is is uh, uneven and really, really snowy and challenging that way. So what do you tell people who are training for hilly races but live in some of these more challenging conditions? How can we get creative and still get our hill work in? Yeah, I used to live in Houston, which is our equivalent of a very, very flat city. And as I was training for a marathon or hillier marathons there, I did my hill work in parking garages, got some very, very strange looks from people. People thought something was wrong as I was chasing <laughs> them up a, an incline in a parking garage. They would, you ever get they, would hurriedly, <laughs> they would hurriedly pull over and thinking that I was somehow trying to notify that there was something wrong with their vehicle or something like that. And so very, very bizarre. So then I had to start shift time shifting a little bit to try to be there when cars or people weren't. So it wasn't as embarrassing, but that was one way that I did. I was doing hill workout in hill workouts in parking garages in, in that flat climate. I've never been in a climate climate where I couldn't get outside, but I do coach people all over the U.S. and some in Canada that have to use a treadmill to get in some of their work during those winter months, which I totally get. And it can be an absolutely effective tool, even if you have to use it quite frequently in an ideal scenario, you know. I think most people would try to get out on the roads as much as possible to, to simulate the pounding and the impact that you have across the course of 26.2 miles on the roads. But when you can't do that, a treadmill is a good, treadmill is a good substitute and you can pretty much do any type of workout you want on a treadmill, either by mimicking the paces that you might need or by adding incline, which is probably the best way to do it. I think sometimes getting downhill on treadmills can be challenging depending on the treadmill that you have, but you can certainly get uphills that way. Trust me, I've tried. I've propped <laughs> treadmills up on steps and been told by the gym owner, you can't do that. You're going to yeah. burn the motor out at our treadmill. That, but that you, you like are ready. <laughs> yeah, maybe a little bit. Um, you've already highlighted that you can get a good eccentric workout with a strength training, which is what downhill running gives you. So yep. would you say that, you know, a combination of treadmill work and some eccentric strength work would maybe nicely balance itself? It, it would. I, the, only, the only other thing I would add, though, is to try to get some sort of downward stimulus by doing potentially stairs down. Mm -hmm. you know, if you could find a building that has a stairwell and just work the down on that, not perfect, doesn't mimic the same running form, but it does give you that eccentric loading of yeah. the quads. It's going to dramatically help you in a different way than the strength would. So that would be something I would probably add as well to, mm -hmm. to round that out. So you're specifically saying the downhills on the stairs. Could you or would you recommend ever doing uphill on the stairs if that was sort of uh, somebody's only option? They didn't want to do the parking garage. And like. <laughs> I don't love it, if I'm being honest, because okay. I have people all the time that want to get on a stair climber. And and for me, that isn't, it doesn't mimic what you're getting when you're running up a hill. Okay. If that's your only option, then that would be something to consider. But to me, that would be a last resort for the uphill. I think it's different on the downhill because primarily what you're working there is just that pounding of the quads that you get on a downhill course. And so I, I think that's a little bit more readily applicable running downstairs okay. than it is doing stair climbing. Fair enough. I love what you just said there because 
we actually were talking a little bit as before we started recording about how ultra runners will tend to hike a lot of the uphills. And I actually really wanted to talk about running uphill because it's very different. And, you know, a treadmill will, most treadmills will go to 12, some even 15% grade. At that grade, very few people are still running. So you can actually get a decent running workout with just a treadmill. If you're on the stair climber, you're training to hike. Exactly. Is, is kind of my opinion. Well, and that's a good yeah. point. And when you are doing an ultra that requires hiking, you have to practice that as well. So you need to yeah. find a way to do that either on a treadmill yeah. or on a a hill that mimics the terrain you might face out there. And that's, but if I'm writing a workout or a schedule for an ultra runner that might face that, then I'm going to have them do specific days that are dedicated to hiking. That's typically not something you see for a road marathon. No, you're typically not seeing that type of terrain. So, so yes, but, but no, I, I don't think stairs are the same (laughs) uphill uphill stairs anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So use the stairs for the downhill. Awesome. Um, okay. Is there a way on the treadmill or if you're running hills outside that you think about progressing somebody? So when you're introducing them to hills for the first time, can you describe kind of a sample workout that you might give them and then how that might progress as they become more experienced on hills? I'm a big fan of time till reps because it's easy to to gauge your progress on them, you know, instead of distance-based hill reps. And so a simple progression that I see for people is starting with reps of 30 and 60 second hill climbs where you might do three to four times 30 seconds up, easy down, 60 seconds up, easy down, perhaps take a little longer rest after the second hill and then repeat that for three to four reps. Then you can progress by adding reps. You can also progress by adding perhaps a 90 second hill rep into the cycle. So you might end up with three to four times 30, 60, 90. And sometimes we'll reverse that, go 90, 60, 30, depending on what we're trying to emphasize. But that is a simple way to start adding in hills. And again, you do it by time. I like to do every workout by progression. So if you're getting a little higher up the hill in that interval, then that's a sign that you're actually progressing. Very easy to look at, very easy to monitor. So I like people to start conservatively and try to build into it as they progress through the reps. So that's a very simple workout that I often prescribe, whether somebody's training for a, a hilly course or not. That's to me a very good prime, what I call a priming workout in the priming phase of a at the beginning of a cycle. That's really just priming the system, the bu- muscles, and the nerves for the work that will come later. And so that's mm-hmm. one specific example. And then obviously you can progress to things that are much more complicated from there. You know, another I think angle here that people often forget about is you can also consider standard workouts like mile repeats, for example. If somebody's doing mile repeats, which is a workout you're going to see in a lot of road marathon programs, you can make that workout more dynamic by putting it on a loop that might mimic the course that you're trying to to tackle, even if it's not the same extreme. So in preparation for Boston, we'll often do mile repeats on a rolling course here in Austin so that people are getting that stimulus of the up and down while they're also trying to run a certain effort. And so that's a simple way to take a very standard workout and start to add the elements that you need to tackle the Mm -hmm. race you're going after. Okay. And I love, so earlier we talked about downhills having that extra 
uh, risk for injury, right? But on the flip side, don't the uphills have an injury, like sort of prevention aspect to them? It's a little bit easier on the body to run up a hill. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, I think I think that's true. Obviously, you have to be careful with any load, regardless of what it looks like. But yes, the up, running uphill is safer because you typically can't run as fast at similar efforts. So you're able to get that effort-based stimulus without the same stress on the neuromuscular and the musculoskeletal systems. So yeah, it's it's a great tool to start adding speed. And that's why I like those types of workouts very early in a cycle because it adds some of the speed elements in a safe way so that as your body builds into the overall work, you're more prepared. But again, there can always be too much of a good thing, right? So you have to, yeah. again, listen to your body and make sure it sounds Right. And one thing in particular that I like people to be aware of whenever they're incorporating hills is just be aware of their form. So if you're doing a certain number of hill reps, but your form starts to break down on an uphill, meaning that you're slouching over, you're bending at the hip, or bending at the, at the waist instead of staying nice, tall and upright, your legs start to fall apart, get wobbly or anything like that. That's a sign that you're going over the edge and you should stop. And that can be true in any workout. When the form starts to break down, you should really stop. But it can be especially true on the hills where if you start to get a little wonky, you want to pull the plug. Otherwise, you can risk injury. Okay. And now I can just, I always can hear my, uh, our audiences or my clients questions as, as we're talking along. And so one thing I know people ask me a lot is when I'm on my treadmill and I'm doing these hill workouts, what percent grade should I be at? <laughs> like they're they're you know, my yep. treadmill goes up to 12%. Should I do everything at 12%? Is that better? Uh, what do you usually tell people when they're starting off on hills, what grade to select? Or I guess if they're outside, like, are we climbing this humongous mountain or is it just a gentle? slope. What, right. what are your thoughts I mean, on that? The general guidance I like to give is that people get a, a train or a, a terrain or gradient that allows them to run with a relatively normal gait uphill. And I find typically for most people that falls somewhere between four and 6%, sometimes a little bit more than that if they're more experienced with it. But you want to be able to run a relatively normal gait, normal form, but just have that resistance that that hill provides. And those are the numbers that you tend to see, but you don't necessarily have to know the numbers. You know, there are websites you can go to and measure the course and get the elevation profile. But really, you just want to say, hey, can I run this without having to significantly modify my form? If so, then you're probably in the right spot. Love it. Boom. That's great. Yeah. Great advice. So when we're starting to get very specific, so into that last four to six weeks before a marathon or a goal race, for example, and we want to get really specific. So I'll, I'll use my example. I'm training for CIM right now. I'll be doing CIM and it's oh, about four, less than four weeks away. Yeah. And so tell me what you think of this and and go easy on me if you don't like it because I already did this workout. <laughs> um, so on the week, just, just a couple of days ago, I actually did a, a sort of a simulator long run, and I might have even gotten this from you, a CI emulator mm -hmm. That's right. <laughs> uh, long run where I actually, we, we have a treadmill, it's called a soul treadmill, and it actually goes downhill. So okay. I, I kind of looked at the first 10K of the CIM course and got like, it would be this many percent down for the first kilometer and then this, and, and I just sort of varied the grade of the treadmill, but it was overwhelmingly down yep. <laughs> for the first, I, I did about an hour on the treadmill. Okay. And then I went outside and I did 
two hours outside, which is flatter than flat. And that was right. served as one of my kind of simulator. And I practiced the, the nutrition and the fueling and the, the hydration and everything that I'm going to do where the outfit, like all of that. But that's sort of how I was building in that hill work to be very course specific, but it would be a totally different can of worms if I was training for Boston or if I was training for New York or if I was training for an ultra marathon that had 10,000 meters of, <laughs> of vert. So uh, how do you think about getting into that really course specific phase of the training? I think that's a good, a perfect example. You know, CM is a course that has sort of rolling net downhill early over the first half, and then you have a pretty gradual downhill from about 14 until 21 or so and then it's flat at the very end so you simulating the terrain of that opening half was a smart way to do it and then you add in that additional running to kind of get the overall volume that you're looking for but i do think that what you want to do typically four to seven eight weeks out is consider at least one but perhaps two long runs that mimics the terrain as much as possible and ideally that you also perhaps do some pace work where you might be running marathon pace over some of that terrain. We'll always do a CI emulator. We have a Boston simulator course here in Austin that we'll typically do four to five weeks out from those race days when they come up and we'll have people not run all of the terrain at marathon pace, but perhaps get anywhere from six to eight miles of work on that terrain at marathon pace. Particularly, we like to simulate the Newton Hills. We have some hills here in Austin that allows for that. So we'll have people run marathon effort through through the Newton Hills of Austin, uh, uh, Austin equivalent Newton Hills, in order to really simulate what it's like to face down that toughest part of Boston. But I think your example is a perfect one to, to mimic the early parts of CIM and then add the overall distance to get the volume that you need. But this is where, to me, I as a coach, I love it. I love the creativity of this part of the equation and I think as a runner, I would love it too, because it allows you to just think about, I mean, you don't even necessarily have to have a template or, or have somebody tell you what to do, but just think, how can I mimic the terrain as closely as possible, given the variables that I have in front of me? And then how do I add a little bit of work to that? That's going to be at marathon pace or close to it to simulate race day. And really there's no wrong answers you know, except overdoing it. That's, you know, there's only, there's only that. And as long as you're not doing more than say eight or nine miles at marathon pace over the terrain, you're keeping the rest of it easy, then you can't really screw it up. So I would encourage people to be creative just like you were combining the treadmill and the roads, but, but think about parts of your town that might mimic the course and it doesn't have to be perfect, but it's fun to think about these things. And I'm, I'm one too, even in our group here in, in Austin to change our simulator runs every year because we get to mix up the terrain a little bit while still keeping the profile that we're trying to achieve. So how would you recommend a runner mentally prepare for a hilly race? Now you've, you've already talked about being prepared with your training, which is the best way to calm anxiety, <laughs> but is there anything else you would recommend somebody do as part of their race prep for a hilly race when it comes to the mental game? I mean, I, I'm huge on the mental side of racing and I don't know how many episodes I've done on it now, but many, but one of the, if I had to pick one tool for a hilly race that I think really applies is visualization. You know, there is science that tells us if we visualize what we're going to do, 
then as far as our nervous system is concerned, it's as if we've actually done that thing. And, and so you can't, you literally can't replicate what you're going to do on race day, except through a tool like visualization. And so that prepares your body and your mind for what you might face. And so being able to visualize the course and you running it in your mind's eye from start to finish, facing the challenges that you're going to face, managing your effort via a race plan that makes sense and using all the tools that you've put together in training in order to navigate that course to a finish line with your goal on the, on the clock at the end. That is a very, very powerful tool. I think a lot of people, when I say that, think I'm being cheesy or it sounds silly, but it absolutely works. And so if I had to point to one mental tool, that would be it. And I, I love what you said about visualize it going well and visualize like the course and maybe watch a video if if your marathon or uh, race has a, a course profile and a video that goes along with it because a lot of them do. But I also love that you get us to think about what might go wrong. Because if you can think about, you know, this happening and that happening and all these kind of unforeseen things in a very calm and low stress environment, then if that happens in the race, then it's like you already have your kind of checklist of, okay, I've already been here once before in my mind. Right. And it's not as scary and the alarm bells maybe don't go off quite as loudly as they would if, oh my goodness, like this, you know, unforeseen thing just happened in the middle of the race. So whenever I'm explaining this to my clients, like we usually have a a call or or some kind of meeting before their goal race. And I, I get them to do a worksheet and I get them to think about three things that might go wrong and how they'll handle it. And when I talk about it with them, I'm like, I'm not doing this to manifest this thing. (laughs) I'm doing this so that you're prepared if something does happen or even, and really the things that we imagine might happen are usually never the things that happen anyway. But by going through that exercise in your mind, you've kind of had the the foresight to start to go through that decision-making process. I don't know. uh, What are your thoughts on kind of tool? I mean, it's, you're basically practicing problem solving, real-time problem yes. solving. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. even if you face a different challenge, you still would have gone through the exercise of solving those problems in a different way. And so when new problems present themselves, you're you're prepared at least for the process. And, and that's the reality. In a marathon, something's going to go wrong. It's not going to be perfect. I, I mean, that's just the way it is. I mean, you can have the best day, but you're going to face something that's unique. And I mean, I can think of not my most recent marathon PR, but the one before that, where I felt terrible for the first eight miles and had to deal with that. That wasn't something I worried about. You know, I was in preparation for that race, thinking about what's going to go wrong in the final 10 K, you know, what we always Mm -hmm. think about is where you're running into your marathon challenges. And so I had solved all the problems that I might face in the first, in the last six miles, but I had not solved any of the problems that I was actually facing in the first six, but I was ready to deal with it. And I stayed calm and I went to work using my mantras. I'm a big fan of mantras. And so I, I went into my rhythm mantra space and stayed calm and worked through it. And then eventually felt good and never felt bad in the final 10 K, which is just backwards oh. to what is normal. But Amazing. because I had thought about the, the tough things I might face at the end, I was ready to deal with tough things at the beginning. So you never know. 
Okay, so I think this has been a pretty comprehensive discussion. Who knew we could talk about hills for an entire hour? Uh, But is there anything we missed? Anything else that you think is important in this area of hills that we haven't talked about yet? The last thing I would mention is race planning. You know, when you're facing a course that has variable terrain, whether it be downhill rolling or, or uphill, you have to think about your race plan in a way that's going to allow you to manage your energy throughout. And so, you know, I like to talk about textbook marathon plans, right? If you're doing an Indianapolis or a Houston or perhaps a Winnipeg, you can put to, put a textbook plan together where you start a little bit slower, you work down, you hold for 20 miles, and then you try to run faster a little bit at the end. That's textbook, but on hilly terrain, that's not what you're going to face likely. So you need to be very smart about race planning so that you manage your energy throughout. In Austin, you have to do that. I I think it requires a little bit more focus than perhaps a flat course because you're having to constantly think about, am I in the right effort zone versus just following a pace on my watch? And I would break our course here down into six sections, kind of by terrain, by type of terrain and by strategy, you need to tackle each part of the course. And I think any course that has ups and downs, you have to kind of break down that way, you know, break it down into different smaller segments and have a strategy for each one, know roughly the pace ranges you want to be at for each one, if it's up or down, so that you're managing your effort in order to really have something left at the end. And if you if you mess that up, then you can really mess up, you know, a lot of good hill training and, and preparation in advance. And so you can't neglect that final piece of execution, which is how are you tackling the race itself? Right. And, and another plug for your awesome podcast, because you have full episodes dedicated to a lot of these world majors and Austin and some of the very popular courses, you've broken them down just like that. Here's the six sections that I would think about it in And in this section, think about this and here's how you, the effort should feel and all of that. So for anyone that may be running um, like Boston or I know New York just happened, but you have it for that CIM, um, which is, I should have mentioned this earlier. The one that I'm doing next month is in Sacramento, California. So that tends to be a, a popular one for people like to go there and <laughs> try to run fast, even though, like you said, it's a little bit rolling. It's overall net downhill and tends to be a fast course for people. So you have one for that. So if you're, if you're looking to learn a little bit more about these courses, uh, you've done a fantastic job of of laying them all out. I love how analytical you are. It's yes. really <laughs> logical and to a fault. To yeah. a fault. Um, <laughs> no, we runners appreciate it. Trust yes. me. Trust me. <laughs> um, so, on that note, is there anything? Uh, I know you you ran Boston twenty twenty one because this is where you and I met. So I was tracking right. my husband along on that race, and I knew you were running it because you talked about it on the podcast. So I had you in my little app, <laughs> and I was watching you. And then you know you see the little dots moving along, and then the two of you. I'm like, you guys were like running together. It was so funny. So then when I went to meet him out of the, um, after he got out of the little area for the athletes, I saw you coming along. So I, again, hope that wasn't too much of a fangirl, but I recognized you and we introduced ourselves and got a picture. Um, But after that, I believe you were taking almost like a little bit of time off from the marathon and revisiting some shorter races, trying to get fast at the 5k. So how has 2022 been, uh, so far on getting fast and do you have any marathons on the horizon that you want to tell us about? 
no marathons currently on the horizon, which is unusual for me. I'd thought that perhaps at, at this time last year, I would have said I would do Houston in January of 2023, but opted to not. I'm 43 and I'm a big believer that you, if you don't move it, you lose it. And so speed is something you got to hold on to and spend and spend a little extra time focusing on as we age so that you can still go back and run fast over the longer stuff. So I've been focused on 5k and 10k distance really through November on our Thanksgiving, I'll be doing a 10k and, and then I've got a half marathon coming up here locally in Austin in January called the 3M half. Don't have anything planned beyond that at the moment. So focus on the shorter and the faster to try to get that built up again in my portfolio of tools so that when I go back to the marathon, I'm ready to tackle another fast one. I think I can still run a marathon PR in my future. And so I'm trying to lay the foundation with the short and the fast. And oftentimes people neglect that. And, you know, you, you can only run as fast in the marathon as you can for those shorter distances. So you've got to work the whole range. Now, but you've got a 245 or somewhere around 45 there. 45 is my PR? marathon yep. PR, yep. Excellent. So I, I think I've heard you say you think you can get that down to somewhere in the low 240s with the that's right the kind of work in place. Yeah, <laughs> that's the hope. So yes, kind of kind of building from, build, rebuilding from the ground up, so to speak, and being very patient about it. I know that the marathon is not going anywhere and I'm not worried about getting too old yet. So just uh, taking time to do the right things and, and work on some stuff I'd neglected for a little bit so that when I go back to the marathon, I'm fully ready. Oh man, this has been such a power packed hour. You've given us so many great, um, you know, tidbits, lessons, and not just tidbits, but boom moments. So thank you for everything you shared with us. If people want to find out more about you, follow your podcast, um, where can they find you? Well, you can one, learn about my business, my coaching business at roguerunning.com. And my podcast is called Running Rogue. The opposite of that, you can find that wherever podcasts are distributed. You can also follow me on Instagram at Rogue Chris if you'd like to do that or my business at Rogue Running. Very easy to get to. <laughs> well branded. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Well, again, thank you so much for your time tonight, for sharing your wisdom with us and best of luck in your, uh, you know, getting that 10K and, and half marathon and 5K fast so you can run that fast marathon in your mid 40s. So thank you again for, for being with us tonight. Of course. Thank you for having me.